All right, thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. This morning, we're going to be talking about something that's a little difficult. We're going to talk about hypocrisy. I never, ever do this. I don't think I've done this one time since I've been a pastor here. But I'm actually going to start out this morning with a joke. I don't enjoy jokes. I don't really think they're funny. Way back in the day, you know, when I first started getting interested in ministry, you know, my father was a pastor, as some of you know, and I got the chance to speak a few times at our church uh, of 15 or 20 people in New Jersey, and I always felt like I had to start out the message with some sort of joke. I don't know where that came from, but it happened, and I found this one, and it really does have to do with with our message here this morning, so I want to throw it down to you, because we're talking about the idea of hypocrites. So listen to this. A cowboy walked into a Texas bar and he ordered three bottles of beer. And he sat in the back room drinking a sip out of each one in turn. And then when he finished, he came back to the bar and ordered three more. The bartender told the cowboy, you know, a bottle goes flat after it's opened. It would really taste better if you just bought one at a time. And the cowboy said, well, you see, I've got two brothers. One's in Australia and the other's in Dublin, Ireland, and I'm in Texas. And when we all left home, we promised we'd drink this way to remember the days when we drank together. So I drank one for each of my brothers and one for myself and imagined that they were there. So the bartender admitted this was a nice custom and left it right there. The cowboy became a regular in the bar and always drank the same way. But one day he ordered only two bottles. All of the regulars took notice and fell silent. And when he came back to the bar for the second round, the bartender said, I don't want to intrude on your grief or anything, but I wanted to offer my condolences for your loss. The cowboy looked puzzled for a moment. Then a light dawned and he laughed. Oh no, everybody's just fine, he explained. It's just that my wife and I just joined the Baptist church in Longview and I had to quit drinking. It hasn't affected my brothers though. I heard that and I thought that was so good because we're talking about hypocrisy in the church. By definition, what we're talking about is the appearance or the verbiage of something holy and moral and righteous, but yet in reality, there's something that's much, much different. We may try and fool people and try and act a certain way, but we know the heart is still there. And this morning, man, I need to tell you guys as a church body, we've got a difficult passage Uh, I don't know if you've read through Acts chapter 5, but man, it's some pretty rough stuff. It's talking about the the judgment of God and the consequences of sin, and it's not easy, man. It's like if you want to be involved in church growth and be all happy and cheery and sunshine, that's great. But when you got to jump into a text like we have today, it's, it's a lot more difficult and it's a little confusing. It should be reassuring to us that Luke, as the author of Acts, put this in there. Because up until this point, you know, the first four chapters, everything had been going pretty well. Things had been growing, and there was such a sense of awe and community and generosity, and everybody loved each other, and everything was great, and things were growing, and and worship was wonderful, and prayer was powerful, and people were, you know, overcoming things and being healed, and it was great. And then all of a sudden, you got chapter 5. But it's interesting because uh, I came across this idea um, that um, the Bible uh, in the early church is not afraid to show It's dark side. And it should be reassuring to us as a church that even the very early church in its infancy uh, had some pretty major blemishes. 
It was Oliver Cromwell, the British politician in the 1700s, who unfortunately had a bunch of blemishes on his face. And a well-known legend is that whenever he would have himself painted, wherever his portrait would be taken, he would be insistent to the artist that he would say, I want you to paint me exactly the way I am, warts and all. Isn't that interesting? But what he wanted to say is, hey, I don't want you to paint some, something that I'm not. This is who I am, blemishes and all. And today we're talking about the early church, blemishes and all. And this account is one where uh, there's a guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira and they came and they lied and they were deceitful and they were hypocrites and the Lord judged them both and they both died immediately. That's the summary of the first 11 verses. I was talking to my daughter Madison last night. She said, what are you talking about tomorrow, Dad? I'm like, well, I'm talking about people that came to the church and, and they brought an offering, but you know, it wasn't right, done in the right heart. And so the Lord killed them and her eyes got really big. I'm like, so do you have your offering tomorrow for church? <laughs> but honestly, guys, it's confusing and it can be taken a lot of different ways, but that's why it's important for us to go ahead and dive into the text carefully and the context carefully so that we can really understand and discern what is happening here and what is God trying to say to us here? And what can we as a church body, as a community, or even if you're just visiting with us, what can we learn from this and God's desire for purity and God's hatred of hypocrisy? What can we learn? So here we are in Acts chapter 5 and one other just word of introduction because this came to me this week and I thought it was powerful and maybe you'll agree and see that as well. But you know in, uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 uh, Paul's writing and he's talking about how uh, the beginning of that passage is so beautiful. I know many of you have heard it. It's just talking about um, how far away we were from, from Christ. And it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in your hearts you were evil and, and uh, you were enemies of God. And the first several verses are like painting a really bleak picture, right? But then we've got that two-word phrase that's so beautiful and amazing. If you've been around here for any amount of time, I know that you've heard it. But here's where we were. And then what happened? But God. A but God moment. Right there in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, and he talks about how he redeemed us, and he redeemed us from the pit, and he gave us a new identity. It's so amazing, right? And so everything was going so bad for us. That's our testimony in humanity. That's the gospel. We were separated from God. By ourselves, we could do nothing but God, reaching into the darkness and changing it for us. So what I, what I saw, what came to me this week for the first time is in chapter 5, you know, again, for uh, chapters 1 through 4, everything's going great, sense of awe, sense of generosity, people are doing wonderful things, and everything's still growing, and so everything's going great. It's kind of the opposite of Ephesians 2, right? Because what are the first three words of chapter 5? But a man... So God's doing all this great thing, everything's going wonderful, but a man came in. But humanity entered in. Selfishness and pride entered in and ruptured the equation. Women don't get too far off the hook because right away, with his wife Sapphira, so they're both a part of it, right? 
But man, I, I hope that we walk away with the heart collectively that says, all right, God's doing some great things and people are getting saved and there's momentum and there's all that moving forward. Far be it from us to have one of us in our humanity, in our brokenness, come into the middle of it and disrupt that. But that's precisely what happened. What we're about ready to enter into, enter into here in Acts chapter 5 is the very first account of sin in the church. It had been persecuted from the outside. We saw that in chapter 3, right? Peter and John arrested and, and you know, persecuted and that sort of thing. So from the outside, we expect that opposition. But this is the first time we see opposition from the inside. And the enemy was on the move and didn't like what was happening. So what can we learn from this if you're taking notes? Five concepts here that we want to talk about for hypocritical greed, all of them coming straight from the text. These are the things that happen. This is why it's so bad. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? What happened here? Number one, the first thing they did is they committed the sin of robbing God. The sin of robbing God. What's unique is Ananias, the actual meaning of that name, means the gracious one. Isn't that ironic? Because somebody who's very gracious is very freely giving. That's what his name meant. But he was far from that. He was actually the greedy one. Sapphira, her name means beautiful. And actually what ended up happening, what they contrived together in their heart to make a mockery of God was really pretty ugly. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 1 and verse 2. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet. So a quick little bit of context here that that most commentators would agree with that in setting up exactly what happened here, we need to understand a couple things. When he talks about robbing God, really, there, there's two things, really, that we need to recognize. Number one is this whole idea about promising God to give the complete sale of the house or the piece of property, promising him that they would take the proceeds and give it to the church, and then not following through with that. Okay, that's not necessarily in the text, but most commentators agree that there was probably some sort of promise like that made to, made to God. You ever been there before? It's like, all right, Lord, well, if you give me this raise, if you give me this promotion, if you give me this new job, I promise I will give more of that back to you. If you allow me to sell this house or this piece of property or whatever, man, Lord, that would be so great. If you'd be so gracious as to give us a good price, I will take a big portion of that and I will give it to your people. Some sort of heartfelt promise, or maybe even it was a verbal promise, like, hey, everybody, pray that our land sells for a lot because we're bringing all this right back here to the church. First Baptist of Jerusalem, man, you're going to be able to do a lot of great things, so pray that the Lord gives us a great price for this land. They had agreed upon that, and they sold it, and then they decided to lie about it. So they were robbing God because they were not obeying and not giving the full portion that they had promised. Number two, and this is really the obvious one in the text. The first one is a little bit conjecture. 
The second piece is really the one that's absolutely, we know for sure that it's there in the text. And they were robbing God because they wanted to share and take the glory for the gift that they gave. So remember what happened in Acts chapter 4. This was just Matt speaking last week, did an incredible job at the end of chapter 4, talking about this guy that came on the scene. His name was Joseph. He was generous. Everybody loved him. He was encouraging to people. He was, um, you know, praying over people. He ran to the broken people, and he sold a piece of land, and he brought it and said, I want to just give this to the apostles so that anybody else who needs any money can, I want to provide whatever his name was, Joseph. And they even gave him a nickname, right? They said, we are going to change your name. We love your characteristic. We're going to call you Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. The way you are and who you are and what you do is so evident that we're actually going to give you a little nickname. That's how prominent and accepted and loved and beloved um, Barnabas was. So you can only imagine Ananias and Sapphira are there. They're looking at this guy getting all the glory and people are excited and it's being shared and they're being held up as leaders, spiritual leaders in the church for how generous they are. And they're like, you know what? We want to be like that. We want the same kind of glory that he had. And so for that reason, they followed in his footsteps, but they weren't honest about it. One concept that I'd love for you to think about even this morning, if you were to be given a nickname based on how you act and interact with other people within this body, what do you think that would be? But here they are with obviously a jealousy of Barnabas and like we want that we want those accolades we want that spotlight as well so we want to rob God of the glory and we want the glory and I'll tell you if there's any sin that is evident and prominent in humanity it's the sin of pride in the sin of changing what you say or saying something a certain way or making sure that people see and know what you're doing so that you can get the applause of men and the applause of people, and putting forth an image of generosity without truly even sacrificing. That's what was going on here. Now, I'll tell you, for somebody who is given a platform, it's especially significant, but it's all, for everybody, this whole idea about wanting people to think a certain thing about you, I've been guilty of that a thousand times. All right, my heart is so evil and so wicked and so man-centered in a way that I'm always just so concerned and, and wanting the approval of people that it's just, it's so insidious. And you know, it's funny, it talks about it in scripture too. Other places, Paul talks about people who have a false humility. In other words, they can get up here and they can be vulnerable and say, hey, you know what, I really struggle with this or that or the other, but it's kind of a false humility. It's even a layer down because really it's a pride in saying, I'm going to say that I'm humble up here or say that I'm vulnerable so that you think I'm really humble so that really I can still get glory because I'm so humble. You know what I'm saying? It's like the movie Inception. You remember? It's like a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. Because then it goes even deeper than that. It's like, all right, well, what if, what if I say that sometimes I want to say that, um, you know, whatever, so then, um, you, you know what I mean? It just gets so evil. And maybe I'm the only one that struggles with anything like that about concern of what people think of you in your image versus the reality. But that's a look into the heart of Ananias 
and Sapphira, and it is a serious, serious matter to want the glory for yourself when the glory belongs to God. Look at what Isaiah 42, 8 says. I am the Lord, and that is my name, God says. My glory I will not give to another. I will give to no other, nor my praise to any idols. The God, I don't know if you recognize the theme in all these songs that we lifted up, but it's about, man, even the very breath that enters my lungs, God, you're everything. You are everything. In you is everything. And so when we take some of that and want to hoard that glory for ourselves or are living for the applause of men, that is an absolute atrocity. And the psalmist echoes that thought in Psalm 115, verse 1, that says, not to us. The Latin for that is non nobis. I am not a tattoo-having guy, but maybe I will be someday. But that would be a good one. Non nobis. Not to us. Not to me. Not to our church. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. And this was a violation of that. Because in their hearts it was, hey, look at what we're doing. Hey, to us, not to your name be the glory. That was the heartbeat of Ananias and Sapphira. What about the second one? Number two, they were fueled by Satan. They were fueled by Satan. How did this evil come about? They were fueled by Satan. Keep on reading in verse 3. Here's what it says. But Peter said to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He recognized that this was an evil influence in Ananias and that Satan had entered in and corrupted like he always does and, and, and tried to give him a different motivation rather than what was right. Anything he could do to tear down the beautiful thing that God was doing. And what I think is so ironic, ironic about this, guys, is that Paul knew firsthand, full well, what it was like to have Satan enter into his heart and try and steal his heart away. And speak something that is not true, right? You remember this passage right here in Matthew? Back when Jesus was with his disciples, Peter being the main one, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed. But then on the third day, he would be raised again. He told them that part. Verse 22, but then Peter, the same guy that's confronting Ananias, but Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And just remember, guys, we're a matter of a few months from when this happened, okay? So Peter's like, I know what you're feeling right now. I've been tempted to go my own way and to have my own agenda and have my own plan and try and look like I'm the hero. Here's Peter, big, gruff, protecting Jesus. This is not going to happen to you. I'm not going to let it happen. We saw it again in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Over and over and over again, Peter's pride and, and wanting to be seen as the strong, brave, valiant one got him in trouble. But we can see right here that 
the enemy was the one speaking to the heart. That's who it is fueled by. Number three, Ananias and Sapphira both had an owner mentality. An owner mentality. Okay, and what I mean by that is there was something that had crept in that was entitlement, that was, this is mine, these are my possessions, I can do with it whatever I want. And what I love about this passage is Peter acknowledges all of that, right? Keep on reading here in verse 4. It says this, uh, Peter says, listen, while the land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Ananias and Sapphira, like so many of us, is prey to this ideology that we can never have enough. It's really interesting in doing some studying this week about giving patterns in America, American generosity. It's interesting that the generosity amongst Americans has been in a decline over the last 20 years. We used to be a lot more generous than we are now. And that's not just at the church level, but that is in general to charities and whatever else. And this author of this book that I was reading said the reason for that is pretty compelling. He said the reason for that is because of the traumatic elements of the recent past, including 9-11, random mass shootings, violence, etc. All of those have actually shaped today's never enough culture. Its effects are observable in our society, in our families, in our workplace, in our school. When we cannot heal, a fear of scarcity takes over. So rather than overcoming this trauma by processing it, which requires vulnerability, we try to numb the fear by seeking to acquire more things and in that feel a sense of security. Isn't that really interesting? And I just wonder what was going on in their minds. You know, like, okay, well, we promised God we would give him the whole thing. We've told everybody we'd give him all that money. But, man, we got a really good price for that. And, you know, they'll never know. And, you know, we never know when we're going to need more money. I mean, have you seen our, seen our camel lately? Remember that big buckle right there on his knee? We're probably going to need knee replacement surgery for the camel. That's going out pretty quick. Right? I mean, we never, we want to save for our kids' education, you know, and like, you know, we want to save for this or save for that, or there's a leaky, you know, flax up there on the roof, and like, all of a sudden, the justifications of all the other reasons what you promise to God, you just need to hold on to because of fear of the future. Absolutely unbelievable. Number four, the reason it was hypocritical and so dangerous and greedy was because um, one, of the, one of the results of that is that it causes judgment from God. And this is where we get scary, man. All right, so keep on reading. So Peter confronts him on all this stuff. Here we are in verse 5. And when Ananias heard these words specifically, you know, you have not lied to men but to God. This is really a big deal. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. He died immediately on the spot. And we don't know from the text if 
there was shock, there was a heart attack, you know, he was so overwhelmed by like, holy cow, I've just been found out. We don't know what happened, but he died immediately. And what happened? And great fear came upon all who heard it. Notice verse 6. I just love that they put that in there. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This was the first student ministry activity that we see in the book of Acts. This is it. This is the deal. The young men. All right, middle schoolers. Well, here we go. Pallbearers now. Apparently, undertakers now. It'll be fun. It's great outreach. Bring your friends. But anyway, the young men come in and then rush them out and like, holy cow, what happened? What is this judgment? What does this look like? And for many of us, we look at that and we're like, well, hold on. I mean, certainly we see that element of God, that swift justice, that judgment. We see that in the Old Testament all the time, right? Think about Joshua chapter 7 and that great story of Achan, right, when he strictly was given instructions not to grab all these trinkets and all these treasures and spoil, and he took it anyway, hid it under his tent, and, and there was dire consequences for him and for the nation of Israel. Many people died. And we look at many of that Old Testament stuff, and, and so much of us wants to be like, yeah, that was in the age of the law. We understand that God wanted his people pure, and man, if they, strict, you know, if they purposefully did that, they're going to die. If they touch that Ark of the Covenant, which they clearly said, don't do it, he's going to die. Well, I mean, it's kind of harsh, but that was God's law. But, man, we love to think that now we're in the age of grace, right? Once the cross came, it's like, man, lavish love on us, and it's just freedom and goodness and joy, and everything's great, and come just as you are, and you're broken, and you're a hypocrite. That's okay, I'm a hypocrite too, you know? Like, we're all just in this together, and there can be kind of this tendency in the American church now to be like, you know what, it's okay. Just, you know, God accepts everybody, and God's so full of love, and all of that is true. But what we also see is God demands purity from his people. And there's a judgment that comes when there's people that have ulterior motives, people that are mocking God, lying to God, trying to get the glory for themselves. They better watch out. Okay, when we talk about the book of Acts, right from the beginning, we talked about how there's some things that are descriptive and there's some things that are prescriptive. Right? Descriptive means this is what happened then. It's interesting narrative. Man, that was crazy and wow. But it doesn't necessarily can't just take that and that's not going to happen today potentially and then there's prescriptive like these are the things that we are prescribed that we need to do this is definitely something that's descriptive okay i'm not going to say that god if you don't give enough money here uh this morning in the offering that god's going to zap you dead right now no way i'm not going to say that because if, if that kind of thing's true i would be dead a hundred times over how many times have i robbed god in my heart or in my mind or in selfishness or whatever right but that's the way that he chose to deal with this right here. And it's interesting because other places in scripture you see that God wants his people to be holy. The reputation is important. The heart is important. Right? Here's a passage of scripture that you don't hear a whole lot. Even though we talk about communion and we have communion together, you know, six times a year or so. Once every other month and we talk about it and it's great. We talk about examining yourself. That's great. But man, this last part of this instruction we tend to leave off. Let's remind ourselves of that, right? Let a person examine himself then and see the, eat the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning 
the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You need to confess your sins. You need to be ready. You need to have a heart. Don't make a mockery of communion. We get all that, and we talk about that. But look at this next verse. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged with that judgment that comes from God. So Paul's saying, you know what, the Lord's already at work. And some of you who are mocking, some of you that are not taking it seriously, you're playing a game. The Lord's decided that he's going to give you an illness or an ailment, or in some cases, some people have died. It's scary to think about. And again, that's absolutely not always the case. God can do whatever he wants. But there needs to be a realization for us, even here this morning, that God's not one to play games with. God's not one to mess around with. The judgment of God is a serious and a sobering thing. Last one, number five, what happened here? It affected the whole body. Okay, notice in verse five, it said a great fear was there. And then in verse 6, it gets even even worse. You heard about the young men. They came. All right, got it. Verse 7. And after an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. All the young men come back. They're all sweaty. They got their shovels. All right, can we get back to normal youth ministry? Oh, no, you got more jobs. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That one for sure, we know. The first one, maybe it was just shock, whatever, but the second one, it's like, well, Peter had a supernatural, God-given ability to read minds, apparently, and he knew that God was going to strike her dead as well. She was going to breathe her last as well. It's scary, and it's sobering, but it's something that affected everyone. So everybody else was like, did you hear what happened? And there was a great holy fear and holy awe amongst the people because they see how God deals with mockery and sin and how he chose to deal with it there. So what does that mean for us? Man, the reason that we spent this time, the reason that we dive into this uh, is to use it as a warning for us. And for us as a body of believers, if that's who you are this morning, to take a look at that example and to clear your heart and say, God, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be robbing you of glory. I don't want to be robbing you of resources by hoarding everything myself. I want to do the opposite of that. So what we want to share here is really what we should um, be doing as a church body collectively in hypocritical greed, comparing that with what we want to be, which is an authentic community of generosity. What does authentic generosity look like? Number one, instead of the sin of robbing God, we get the joy of sharing. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you are very generous people. I know that. And when you get to that understanding where, you know, you can share what you have and you can do it with a pure heart, it's unbelievable. I want to read this passage for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. 
Paul says this. The point is, whoever sows sparingly, so if you're stingy, you're going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully, in other words, if you're generous, you will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's an incredible passage, and usually we stop there, but listen to what the next one says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. You want to see true joy and true happiness? It's when we can understand that what we're giving and what we're sharing is being used for the gospel. It's incredible. Number two, instead of being fueled by Satan and what he's speaking to your heart, we're going to be fueled by the great grace of the Spirit. We talked about that last week in chapter 4, verse 33. It says, a great grace came upon them. And that's what we need as people. Our tendency is to hoard and to keep and to parade around and want to look good. It's a great grace that we need that says, nope, I'm going to live from the heart. I'm going to share freely and I'm going to give lovingly. It's only by the grace of God that we can get to that point. It's incredible. Number three, instead of having this owner entitlement mentality, we have a steward mentality. Psalm chapter 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Recognizing that it all belongs to God anyway, I'm just a steward of these resources. So I can either use them on myself or I can use them to make a difference in other people. That'll change your life. You know, we talk about uh, the Old Testament and we talk about the idea of a tithe, which is 10%, which was they had several different tithes in the Old Testament, but many of us are familiar with that. And somebody might say, well, why should God get 10% of my money? I've worked hard for it. It's my money. Why should God get 10%? But if we think about this principle, it's better like, well, hold on. If everything belongs to God anyway, and he wants to let you in on it, what would be a good deal? 50-50? A better question would be, why should I get 90% of God's money? It'll just change the way you think about it. Number four, what happens? The situation, he received judgment from God. What happens to us? We'll receive a blessing from God. We'll receive blessing. He's promised he's going to take care of us. We recognize that, but more than that, the joy of giving and sharing is, is unbelievable. I remember back when I was in college, coming home as a poor college student, and I'd have people in my church that would shake my hand. I don't know if anybody ever got this move before. They would shake your hand, and you would feel something inside the handshake, and it was a, just a big wad of money. Anybody ever do that before? But I was like, I, I'm like, oh, man. They're like, hey, you know what I want you? I know you're in college, and I want you to, whatever, be blessed by this. I was like, awesome, big you know, 100 bucks or whatever it was, and it seemed like the greatest thing in the world. And later on, as I started to live and realize as God began to provide more and more, and I was no longer just selling shoes at JCPenney for, you know, pennies, literally, and earning nothing, and in seminary, and like, started to get a job, and God started to provide for you, and you have a salary, and you're like, you know what, giving to other people is really a lot of fun. It's a joy when you hear the Spirit of God prompt something, and that's a blessing. And I'm not saying this is by no means prosperity gospel. Like, hey, if you give so much, God's going to you know, multiply that ten times like it's some sort of guarantee. Beware of people that say that. But what I will tell you is this. God will provide for you, and God will give you incredible joy when you see that you could be the answer to somebody's prayer. 
And number five, guess what? This one's exactly the same. Hypocritical greed, that affects the whole body. Everybody's scared, everybody's fearful, everybody's aware, and it affected everybody. We get some people that are authentically generous, that's going to affect the whole body as well. Right now as we speak, we got a high school girl that just graduated. She's college age now. She's out in California, and she is studying to go abroad to the Middle East to spend time in ministry there as a 19-year-old. The reason she was able to go on this trip is because our church was able to help fund her over there because of your generosity. Right now at NC State, there's a student girl just finished her freshman year, and because of a trip that she took just this last summer to Lebanon, being so moved and so stirred up by what was going on there in refugee and orphan care that they were involved in there, she is studying Arabic right now at NC State and is deciding whether or not she wants to take a huge chunk of time to go and serve over there in Lebanon for an entire year. That trip was possible because of your generosity. It affects the entire body. And I want to be absolutely clear here this morning that we are not even just talking about finances. That's a part of it. But when you talk about generosity, you talk about your physical capital, like how you spend your time, who you spend your time with. You talk about emotional capital, who you share with, what friendships you cultivate, relational capital. There's all these different kinds of resources and gifts that God's given each one of us. And we can decide to hoard it, or we can decide to give it freely, and we can decide to take the glory for ourselves, or we can give the glory to God. And our prayer this morning from this passage is that we would be the kind of people that have a heart that wants to see God glorified. Let's bow together. And, and Father, we've said much um, this morning. Man, what a difficult issue and topic. But Lord, we just thank you, Lord, and we're reassured by you that you care about your church. You care about its authenticity. And God, you're concerned when people, even from the inside, are not authentic and are causing issues. And so, Father, I just pray collectively, Lord, for us, that you would give us clean hands, and God, that you would give us a pure heart. And Lord, that you would continue to bless this church. Lord, I thank you for the generosity of so many. And God, I thank you for your provision uh, for us. And Father, I just pray from the bottom of my heart that on an individual level, you would cause us to be marked by those characteristics of authentic generosity. Lord, our prayer even this morning is not to us, but to your name be all the glory. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you've shown us today. Help us know how to apply it. In your son's name we pray.